Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them with me to, um, to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, as most of you know, uh, we're in a series right now called Blueprint. It's a study of this, uh, this letter written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 AD. And in the letter, he addresses what it means to be a Christian, and then he goes on to, uh, as best he can, explain to his readers uh, God's overarching purpose for our lives. And today, I want to look at what is really one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, not just this particular letter, but all of Scripture. And it's a text that describes two different ways of living and how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, moves us from one to the other. Okay, and, and the section I'm about to read for you, like other sections of this letter, is just packed full of theological words and concepts, uh, all very interesting to explore, but for the sake of time, I'm going to try to keep our focus on the big picture of what Paul's saying, okay? So he writes this beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance, uh, prepared in advance for us to do. Um, in 1932, Hollywood director Victor Halperin released an independent film called White Zombie, with a Bela Lugosi. And ever since its release, the idea of The Walking Dead has captured and really held the imagination of, of American pop culture. In 1968, the famous movie Night of the Living Dead came out and, and essentially solidified the zombie genre in the entertainment industry, so much so that today, nearly 40 years later, we have books, comics, uh, graphic novels, movies, video games, phone apps, conventions, college courses, and yes, even research societies that are all zombie-focused. Because, you know, what you don't know can eat you, which is a, kind of a funny yet horrifying thought. Um, currently, one of TV's most popular and long-running series is The Walking Dead, which ne next month launches its uh, seventh season on AMC. And this zombie fixation that we Americans seem to have uh, recently prompted Time Magazine, or Newsweek Magazine, that is, to ask the question, why are we so obsessed with zombies? It's a fascinating article. Dr. Kyle Bishop, in his book, American Zombie Gothic, The Rise and Fall and Rise of the Walking Dead in Popular Culture, suggests that it all, it all comes down to fear. He says, people are afraid. They're afraid of dying. They're afraid of getting sick. They're afraid of social infrastructures falling apart, the collective nightmare. And it poses the question of, what would you do? Would you survive? And the zombie storyline plays out this great survival narrative. Other researchers, like Stanford literary scholar Angela uh, Vitigar, uh, points out um, 
our, that our obsession with everything zombie can be traced back to a rather unexpected source. She says that early on, the idea of zombies helped us cope with the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, Vitiger explains we, how we use fictional narratives, she says, not only to emotionally cope with the possibility of impending doom, but even more importantly, to work through the ethical and philosophical frameworks that were in many ways left shattered in the wake of World War II. She says mass disasters such as the Holocaust, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, opened up new revelations or realizations about the human capacity for violence, casting doubt about the upsides of modern society. Our current scholars also note how zombie interest experienced a significant resurgence following the attacks, the attacks of 9-11, 15 years ago today. Why? Because in an instant, the world was changed forever. And on that day, our collective anxieties shifted. Again, Kyle Bishop writes, <clears throat> suddenly people in the U.S. felt insecure. And as it so happened, the nature of those insecurities manifested in zombie narratives. Invasion, destruction, apocalypse, infection. The intersection of these influences made it perfect for the zombie to take over. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, Ray, why are you so obsessed with zombies, right? Well, and I, I'm really not, I'm really not, although I do find the phenomenon fascinating, you know, psychologically, sociologically. But more importantly, I, I bring all this to your attention because, well, because the language that Paul uses here in the second chapter of his letter, I don't know how to put it, it's just very zombie-like. He writes to Christians in the church and he says to them formally, you know, you guys were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And the word live there means, literally means to walk. So here's my Ray K translation. You may see where this is going. He says, because of your sin, spiritually speaking, you were the walking dead. You were the walking dead, all of you. And then he goes on to describe two different types of existence. And this first one uh, really represents a comprehensive picture of the human condition outside of a relationship to God. In verses one through three, Paul says, he goes, look, you were, you were living but dead. Spiritual zombies, if you will. Walking around in rebellion and tra with transgressions and sins, separated from God. And in that spiritually lifeless condition, he says, you followed three things. And the term followed here means to be mastered by or enslaved to something. So he says, you were enslaved to a number of things. You, you were enslaved to the ways of the world. You were held captive by worldviews that run opposite of what God says is right, true, good, healthy, and best for you. And comment, commenting on this particular <clears throat> statement, one of my grad school professors, Dr. David Wells, says you can recognize the ways of the world. How? Well, he says, wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. And so Paul here reminds those in the church of how they were, they were formally enslaved, enslaved by traditions, opinions, um, preferences, cultural norms that accepted and promoted ungodliness. You were also enslaved, he said, to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, i.e. held captive by demonic influences and activity. Evil preyed on and exploited your weaknesses. And the reason that's even possible is because more than anything, Paul says, you were enslaved to the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Translation, he says, as human beings, from the moment of birth, he says, you were captive. Really, he's saying we were all captive. All of us held captive by our sin nature. Pride, conceit, self-centeredness. Fourth century 
Christian theologian, Augustine, in his classic work, The City of God, describes our sinful human nature in a very, very interesting way. He describes it as being incurvitus in se, which is Latin meaning curved in on itself. In other words, he's saying we are, as, as human beings, incredibly self-focused creatures. Later in history, uh, theologian and reformer Martin Luther picked up on this same idea, and he wrote, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things for its own sake, even God. Or put another way, he's saying our sin nature is reflected by a self-focused, what's-in-it-for-me type of existence. Everything is meant to benefit the individual, our individual happiness, glory, security, comfort, power, our reputations, our status. And look, in case you think this is just what Christian theologians believe, what they hold to in terms of their view on human nature, you're wrong. Um, David Foster Wallace uh, was a Pulitzer Prize winning American novelist, considered one of the most influential in the last 20 years. Uh, I say he was because Foster Wallace committed suicide eight years ago tomorrow on September 12, 2008. It's a sad story. Uh, Wallace was not a particularly religious guy. He at one time admitted to finding religion boring. And yet in a commencement uh, address to the graduating class of Kenyon College in 2005, Wallace offered this incredibly insightful observation about humanity. He said, basically, our problem as human beings is that we're self-centered. He said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it is so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you're not the absolute center of. The world as you experience, as you see it, is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or the right of you, on your TV screen, on your, on your computer monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, so urgent, and real. That is a pretty, that's a pretty insightful and spot-on assessment of human nature. And David Foster Wallace, whether he realized it or not, was in total agreement with Luther, Augustine, the Apostle Paul, and Scripture in general that teaches our human nature is indeed curved in on itself. We are all, without exception, deeply, sinfully self-centered, from the moment of birth, operating as if the universe revolves around us. And here's the deal. This, uh, this, this self-centeredness well, it can make you a, an amazingly cruel person, as is sometimes the case. But more often than not, it tends to make you an incredibly moral person with an insatiable ego that desperately needs to feel good about yourself and superior to others. And so your morality, your generosity, your serving the needy, you, you, you being a good parent, a good child, a good sibling, a good neighbor, a good, a good, a good colleague at work is really, is really about you. It's about you getting the accolades and feeling better about yourself, not necessarily helping other people. In addition, self-centeredness can make you a very religious person whereby you 
um, attend Sunday services quite regularly. You know, you quote scripture, you pray, you wear the right, right clothes, you say the right words, you obey the right commandments, but it's really all for you. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, think of it this way. You're going around doing all these religious things, all these spiritual things, and then life doesn't go your way. Things aren't, aren't going well. They're not the way you want it, certainly not the way you're praying for things to be. God is not giving what you desire, giving you what you desire, and what do you say? God, I don't get it. What's the deal? I've lived well. I've tried hard to be good. I've done this, that, and the other thing, all for you, and this is what I get. This is what I get. Nothing. I get ignored. I get denied. I don't like it. I'm frustrated. I'm mad at you. I'm done with you. I mean, if that's the reaction when things don't go well, then maybe, I don't know, just maybe you've gotten into religion or into Christianity under the false premise that God, the creator of the universe, would serve you, not that you might serve him. I mean, that's a twisted, that's a twisted idea. Uh, you see what I'm saying? Sometimes our religious activities our obedience, our generosity, our goodness, sometimes all that is conditional. It's all conditional. If God doesn't come through for us in the way that we want, how we want, when we want it, we're done. Done. Whatever the case, you know, whether it makes us cruel, moral, or religious, our human nature is turned in on itself. I mean, we are undeniably self-centered creatures. And this sin nature, this, this, crave, this craving of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts ultimately makes us miserable. And in, poor, in Paul's words, by nature, deserving of wrath. And so he reminds his readers about all this, about how in their transgressions and sins, they were the walking dead. They were spiritually lifeless under divine judgment. But now he says, in Christ, you are living and alive spiritually awakened. Your condition has radically, radically changed. Because of his great love for us, God, Paul says, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He made us alive. In fact, Paul goes on to use resurrection-type language when he declares God raised us up with Christ. He resurrected us. Here's, here's my Ray K summary. Because of Jesus' death, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we the walking dead, are made spiritually alive. And now divine mercy rests on us, not wrath. Paul says God resurrected us. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Ancient people would have gotten the, um, they would have understood the metaphor. It's kind of lost on us. But in the ancient world, everybody knew when a conquering hero returned home in victory, he was celebrated and given the greatest place of honor, seated at the right hand of the king. And Paul's saying that Jesus had been given that victorious seat of honor. And as his followers, we are seated with him in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting how Paul asserts this in the past tense. I mean, I, the last time I looked, I've yet to be raised up anywhere or seated in any of the heavenly realms, you know, so why, why, why the past tense? Simple. Paul's saying this is a done deal. 
This is, this is a done deal. By believing in Jesus, in a cosmic sense, we are legally seated with him in the place of honor. God views us as if everything Jesus did, we did. As if everything he accomplished, we accomplished. And everything that is his is now ours. It is ours now. Love, resurrection, uh, acceptance, honor, inheritance, life. Life eternal. Because of Jesus, all of it, all of it is ours already. Now, here's the big question. How does a person actually move from the one existence, uh, existence Paul describes to the other? You know, how is spiritual zombieism cured? How is it possible to go from living but dead to living and alive? Well, here's the deal. You can't miss the answer. There's no missing it at all because three times Paul explains how it happens. He says in verse five, it's by grace you've been saved. Verse seven, by the incomparable riches of God's grace. And then to eliminate any lingering possibility of misunderstanding or confusion, he repeats himself again in verse eight. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Translation. We are saved, we are rescued from wrath and spiritual deadness, not by how good we are or how moral we are or from what pedigree we come. No, no, no. We're saved by God's grace alone. Life, spiritual life, is a gift we receive through faith in Jesus. And because it's by grace, not works, Paul says nobody can boast. No one can make boasts. I don't know how you see it, but for me, religion is all about boasting. Really, it's all about boasting. It's about, it's about earning your way to heaven, paradise, nirvana, enlightenment, whatever. It's about proving yourself. It's about proving your goodness. It's about getting to a point where you say, man, I deserve all that. I deserve eternal life. I deserve it. God, look how religious I am. Look how moral I am. Look at all the rules I keep. Look, look at all the good things that I've done. But how much good do you have to do? How many rules do you actually have to keep? How moral do you have to be? You never know because religion never answers the question, which is exactly why it is so incredibly exhausting. It's exhausting. It's, 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 it's discouraging. It's debilitating. It leads to guilt. It leads to judgmentalism, insecurity, and fear. But Christianity is different from that. Biblical Christianity puts an end to all that because it puts an end to the boasting. We deserve nothing. We earn nothing. Jesus has done all that needs to be done. And through faith in him, we are graciously gifted everything. On the theory, that sounds pretty good, right? That sounds pretty awesome. Going from wrath to mercy, from death to life. But how do we know for sure this transition has occurred? I mean, can we know for sure? Uh, is there any evidence of it? The short answer is yes. Because Christianity is not simply rational. It's also experiential. When Paul mentions faith here, understand, he's not merely referring to an intellectual acknowledgement of who Jesus is, although it's no less than that. He's also, he's also though talking about a, a faith 
that is real. It's a faith that carries practical implications every day. In other words, the reality of God's grace, when embraced and experienced through genuine faith, it alters the way we think and the way we live. It changes, it changes things, it changes us. And for me, the best way to articulate that uh, is to put it this way. Being saved by grace leads to a life of grace. What does that kind of life look like in practical terms? Well, by way of comparison, and this certainly isn't an exhaustive list, list by any stretch of the imagination, but by way of comparison, I think Paul would tell us that a life of grace is, a, is one of contentment versus anger. I mean, let's face it, as human beings, it is our natural bent, it is our sinful inclination to lash out in anger when we don't get what we want, how we want it, when we want it, you know, when we don't think we're getting what we deserve, man, look out. Some people, maybe some of us here this morning, live every day with this, 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 this undercurrent of annoyance, you know, this constant frustration. It's like a perpetual state of grumpiness because for us, life isn't fair. That's not fair. I deserve more, I deserve that, I deserve the other thing, I deserve what you have and you have and you have, I deserve. I deserve more, I deserve better. But what if we really believe that everything we have in this world is a gift from God? That everything, everything is a tangible demonstration of his love and his grace and any and all of it is more than we deserve. If that's true, then I would imagine that no matter how life goes, no matter the direction it takes, with humility, we'll say, to, we'll say to God, Lord, I realize I deserve nothing, nothing. Thank you for what you've given me. In short, we'll always find contentment. You know, we haven't talked about this. I don't think we've talked about it, but um, Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome you know, less than stellar circumstances, to say the least. And yet while there, he was able to write these words. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. For Paul, a life of grace was a life of contentment. I think a life of contentment is also marked by acceptance versus disdain. Now, I realize that there are, there are a lot of very well-educated, hardworking, successful, accomplished men and women and students in this room today, in this church. I get that. And there, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with celebrating and, and finding joy in your accomplishments. That's fine. But if your identity is all wrapped up in that, it's all wrapped up in those accomplishments. If that's where you get your self-value, your self-worth, your self-esteem, then it's highly likely that you're going to be feeling very superior to and show contempt for those who don't work as hard as you, who are less educated, who are less successful, who are less productive. You'll look at them and you'll lack empathy, you'll lack sympathy. You won't be accepting of those who are different, 
who are not like you. It's, it's not like you're going to go around expressing out-and-out disdain, necessarily. But in reality, in your heart and in your mind, you'll think less of them. You'll look down your nose at those who are different. People of different cultures, different races, different political parties, different socioeconomic levels, different opinions. You'll judge them and you'll secretly despise them and want very little to do with them, if anything. However, if your identity, your worth, your value, your esteem is wrapped up in the grace of God, well then, you know. You know that you are a sinner saved by grace alone. That is it. That's the bottom line. And you will be accepting of other people, even those who are different. No, no superiority, no disdain. In Paul's words, you'll accept one another just as Christ accepted you. In addition, if you've experienced grace through faith in Jesus, you'll be quick to forgive others and not hold grudges. You want to know why? Think about it for a second. The reason is, the only, because the only way, to, <clears throat> the only way to, you can hold a grudge, the only way that you can remain bitter, the only way that you can stay really angry at someone is, it, is if you're pretty sure that you're superior to them, right? That you're better than they are. For example, if someone has upset you for some reason, if someone has disappointed you, but with humility, you realize that you have, you will, and you do disappoint and upset people as well, then it's hard for you uh, to, to stay angry. It's, it's, it's easier for you to forgive that person because you're the same, you do the same things. And you realize you're no better than they are. But if your attitude is, well, <laughs> I would never offend, wound, disappoint anyone. Well, then you can justify and hold on to your grudge forever. And your, your, your arrogance and your denial will fuel your bitterness and, and anger and lack of forgiveness. But a life saved by grace willingly and readily extends grace and forgives others. Once again, in Paul's words, you'll be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then one final thought <clears throat> is that a life of grace is marked by selflessness versus selfishness. See, being dead in sin means that our, our, our human nature remains incurvitous in say, curved in on itself with little en interest at all, you know, um, or concern for what's out there for others. We're just, we're here. Life is about us, the individual, it's about me, it's about my needs, my wants, my preferences, my goals, my desires. But when the reality of God's love and grace floods our hearts and minds and the power of God awakens us to new life in Christ, then that, that, that inwardly focused nature begins to curve in the opposite direction, you see. And it begins to look outwards, considering the needs of others. And it's not, it's not that we'll think less of ourselves, we'll just think of ourselves less and others more. And being concerned with the physical, emotional, spiritual welfare, welfare of those around us will we'll not only look in their direction, but will move toward those in need. And with compassion and with radical generosity, with a desire to serve, we will do and we will give whatever we can to help 
especially when it comes to helping the walking dead find true life. It's this grace-filled existence Paul affirms when he says, he says, like Jesus, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So, this is the first time I've ever taught on this text. Uh, I've wanted to for so long because, because it's, 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 it's so unique. I mean, it's, it's, it's unique. Paul's language is strange, and the imagery that he presents here of the walking dead is fascinating, maybe even a little creepy, right? In fact, I, uh, I considered calling the series The Walking Dead, but, uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I read Paul's writing, the, and, and certainly the more I studied this particular section, the more I realized that the focus of this letter is not on death, it's on life. It's on life. And the message of Christianity, the goodness of Jesus, is that life is available, spiritual life, eternal life, is available to anyone and everyone who wants it. There's no working, there's no performing, there's no, there's no earning, there's no begging, there's no pleading, there's just believing. You see, that's what makes the good news so good. In Jesus, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. And I don't know, maybe for, maybe for some of you today, Maybe for some of you, this morning you need to stop boasting in yourself, leave religion behind, and simply believe in Jesus, and essentially come back to life. Let's pray together. Our Father, the imagery that Paul gives us is, is pretty pretty clear. I mean, the dead can do nothing. The dead are helpless. They're helpless. And the idea of resurrection means that an outside force, something from outside the dead, must come and make them alive. And you have come for us. We who formerly walked death, spiritually lifeless because of our separation from you. In Jesus, you have, you have given us life. And through our faith in him, your grace is applied. The wrath is removed and your mercy remains on us. We are resurrected with Jesus. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. It's a done deal. And so this morning, we, we say thank you that we don't have to bank on our own abilities, our own works, our own effort, our own performance, that we, there's no boasting in ourselves, just believing in Jesus. And we love him this morning. We're grateful for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?